Hello and welcome to the Resiliency by Design podcast. In this podcast, we embark on a journey exploring the multitude of issues woven into climate change. My name is Ozzy Lang, and I will be guiding you through this exploration with the help of experts from the community. These experts are individuals taking action on climate change through adaptation or mitigation. The journey to a future where we can all thrive is not a simple path, but with the guidance of great leaders and a willingness to change, our future on this beautiful planet will be bright. On this episode, we will explore climate adaptation policy and how policy helps to shape the world around us. I am joined by Michelle Patterson, Chair of the Geography Department at Vancouver Island University. Michelle has been teaching environmental geography and resource management courses at VIU for the past seven years. Before working at VIU, Michelle was the Vice President of World Wildlife Fund Canada, working on marine protected areas and ecosystem-based management in marine environments across British Columbia. Michelle has recently developed a climate adaptation policy course in association with the Adaptation Learning Network. On this episode, Michelle describes the course while explaining the benefits of understanding policy and policy development. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. You're welcome. It's fun to be here. So just to jump right into things, could you provide me and our listeners with a brief description of the intro to climate policy for climate adaptation professionals course? Sure. This is a course in amongst the suite of other courses that is being developed by universities and professional associations in BC, focused on various climate adaptation topics. And the one that VIU worked on and I developed was this one on climate policy. And so what it is, is it's a four module course. The first module is an introduction or foundations of climate change policy. The second module is a a deeper dive, looking at some specific issues. The third module is very specific to industry professionals, so looking at separate professional fields and the kinds of climate policy guidance that might be in those sectors. And then the fourth is a capstone activity for the class to engage in around working with each other to come up with some ideas about applying the kinds of things they've learned in their real-life context. I will be with students through the whole course. I've tried to make it really engaging as possible for a variety of people's needs. I'm looking forward to getting to know the first class. I like how you go through and have developed it. That introduction gets them interested, but then really brings them through to putting the things that they're learning into use and working with each other to really get their hands into the content. Yeah, for sure. And that's a very important part of this too. Many people think it's a kind of a dry, static topic, right? But policy is all around us and it's a framework for how many of the things in our lives happen. If you're a professional working in the field, having a a lens of climate adaptation policy to put on the kinds of things you're doing can be a really useful addition to your toolkit. Like you were saying, this policy is intertwined in society in so many different ways. How is policy and what is the role of the policy in climate adaptation? 
the best way to think about that is policy is really a way that ideas get implemented, right? You can have ideas, but how are they going to come into action? And how are all the things that need to be done going to be considered in one space? In the course, we talk about the Pan-Canadian Framework on Climate Change and Clean Energy, which is the Government of Canada's big policy document around climate change. It has a bunch of micro kinds of policies in there that relate to different aspects of the climate change space. Policy is kind of everywhere. When you think about public policy, which is government policy, that's how the vision of government for certain topics actually gets implemented. The BC government right now is working on a new adaptation policy themselves, and they're looking for people to contribute to that. Individuals have a role in the creation of these policies too, because we don't want to be just policy takers. We want to help be policy makers because we all have a lot of knowledge to contribute. And so some of the things that the course does then is it allows people to start thinking about how policy in terms of climate adaptation is part of everything they do and how they can both take from it and be part of helping to create it at the same time. I like to think of it as a living thing as opposed to a static thing that sits on a shelf because it's constantly evolving and changing and has a number of complications of its own that we talk about in the course. My next question was going to be, how does policy increase positive climate adaptation actions? But I think that you you really covered that in talking about how the actions that governments and, and people are taking is really embedded in the structure of these policies. It incentivizes these actions because it's built from collaboration, from agreed upon efforts that need to be done, right? From efforts that understand the complications and the risks of not doing things that allows a space for funding to be brought into the picture to make things happen. Good policy can really enable a lot of action to happen if it's been well-developed. You can have climate adaptations without policy, but having a good policy sort of put everything in a framework of how it can be implemented to reach the outcomes we're all hoping for. You can't really get somewhere without having a roadmap to try and figure out the best ways of going somewhere. And especially with such a large population, when you're talking about creating policies for all of BC or creating a map for all of Canada to adapt to climate change, the root of that is coming from policy. And that is the best way to ensure that we get to a better place. Yeah, that's right. And it kind of makes us accountable too. A lot of the policies that are in some of the professional organizations already are things like sustainability codes, ethics, guidelines, those kind of things. So policy can make us accountable for our actions. And especially if it's an agreed upon policy, then it really does create a workable roadmap. We've done this work uh, together to get to that place uh, where we know what has to be done and here's the roadmap to do it. We've covered a lot of the positive sides of policy, and I don't want to say it's a negative side, but you're also going to be covering some policy gaps in the course. I'm wondering if you could provide an example of a climate adaptation policy gap. I'm thinking of process-related things more than anything else, I think, from a policy perspective, but things like what the climate could look like. There's a range of scenarios out there, so how do we create policy that reflects different kind of scenarios about flooding or about sea level rise, that would be one. There's a lot of challenges and gaps around how best to implement some of these things. 
because some actions may contradict each other. And there's more mitigation plans already than there is adaptation plans. So there's a huge gap around adaptation itself and what needs to be done there. Those are ones that come to mind and they're more process related than anything else. I think that giving insight into the gaps in the process shows some of the gaps in the policies that are needed as well. Exactly. We see a lot of those kind of gaps at the global scale, especially around scenario planning, because there's a lot of uncertainty there. And how do we deal with that kind of uncertainty, especially when we know the main impacts? We're going to see more forest fires, more uh, flooding, more extreme weather, more extreme heat. And so there's temperature ranges and types of weather that we might see, and those have a range of impacts on people. It impacts everybody who is living in society today. When I think of policy, I was thinking people who work in government or in governance positions within organizations, they would probably need to know policy, but why would it be beneficial for people working outside of those governance or those government positions? Policy is really defined just as a course of action or a way to get to a course of action, right? It's a living thing. As I said, it's kind of a framework for how decisions get made all around us. And we use it every day. We just don't really call it that. If you think about your home life, if you have kids, you're always putting rules in place to help guide them and shape their development and make sure they're safe and all that. And those are policies too, right? A stop sign is a policy, tells us what the rules are here at this point in time for how we're going to do things, something we all agreed on together. We're part of the framework for how these things get made. So we can't divorce ourselves from it. And in a public policy context, it's really government's role to implement the kinds of agendas that they have through policies. So you're right, there is a definitely a government flavor to it. But really, policy is something we live with every day. Every time we've got COVID-related masking policies, we're really in the space right now of seeing all kinds of new policies being made about how we interact with each other, and we have to learn to, to live with those. It's something that we don't think about, and we may not call it that, but it's really just how action happens, how decisions get implemented. The research that you have done has been primarily in coastal communities here in B.C., Your master's thesis was exploring marine science and research in BC, and your current dissertation is looking at social cultural value chains of the BC seafood communities. I'm wondering if this research has helped you see kind of the impacts and need for climate adaptation policy here in BC. Well, not specifically because it wasn't the focus of my research, but at the same time, it's the context in which we all live. So we do see a lot of examples in terms of food security, for example, and the need for climate adaptation and food security, especially for Indigenous communities with salmon declines and so on. So that's definitely part of it from the seafood perspective. The way we do science would be another one, what kind of data we collect. Are we doing enough of that? That could almost be seen as another gap, an information gap that helps develop policy around what do we know about what's coming and do we have enough data to make good decisions about things? There's some of it in there related to that for sure, but more I think my basis for climate action is more related to the fact that I think it can be a better political strategy because it's focused on people, right? And helping people and making sure that people's needs are met. And as people begin to realize how much adaptation may be needed, then it may be easier to get buy-in for mitigation because it's less politically fraught 
even the people who might say we're talking too much about climate change and it's not that serious of a problem will be very concerned if the house that they're living on topples into the sea because the hillside is eroded from a constant sea level rise. There may be something there which is a better bridge to thinking about how to reduce emissions by really working a lot on getting people help for the things that they're facing as the climate gets warmer. That's going to stick in my mind for weeks now, this idea that policy for people. Oh, so good one. <laughs> it's I just like this, this idea that you have this community that is building it and you have this interdisciplinary process that you've talked about of building policy, but then the policy is focused around creating a better life for the people in, in mm-hmm. that community. Yeah, we see a lot of inequity in the world as it is. And as the climate warms and changes, we're going to see even more inequity for people that are already vulnerable, right? People who live where there isn't a lot of food right now are going to suffer even more. Homeless people who live on the street are going to suffer in the very hot heat of summer if they don't have a place to go, right? A lot of the municipal work around climate adaptation is focused on vulnerable people. A lot of people are starting to think about these issues more because local governments are the ones that have to deal with individual citizens and vulnerable people and makes it a lot less abstract, right, which is another benefit of thinking about adaptation as a lever to get around some of the complications of dealing with climate change denial and obfuscation and stuff like that. We've talked a lot about BC and ocean level rise. In your experience, do you believe that coastal cities are more inclined to start working and start developing climate adaptation policies? I don't know if I'd say that coastal communities are more than other communities because a lot of interior communities have their own really worrisome issues around fires. So I don't know if I could say that coastal communities are more inclined, but all local communities are in the forefront of the issue. It's on people's minds um, all the time. They have to deal with what's coming as opposed to a lot of the mitigation efforts been led by federal governments or large governments, but communities in BC, whether coastal or rural, are especially ones that are in more vulnerable places, interior communities that are near forests that are potential wildfire hazards, or coastal communities that are right at sea level. There's a lot of both of those uh, kinds of communities that are very anxious to start working on climate adaptation. Most cities in BC do have growing climate adaptation plans or planning, and there's a lot of resources out there for communities to, to do that. Part of the initiative that this course is involved in is making sure that professionals have the tools they need to be able to think through this kind of lens in their own job as they do their work in engineering or in agriculture and so on. A key component of the course is taking the knowledge learned through the course and applying it to the professionals' working lives. You're already modeling this behavior of taking taking this knowledge that you're learning from one source, and then seeing how you can connect it to all different ways in your um, professional and personal life. And the Adaptation Learning Network webinar, you talk about how you're taking the adaptation competency framework and integrated within VIU. There's a lot of interesting ideas in there. It will add to the professional practice that people are doing, including myself. I'm a professor. I'm looking at 
the work I do, which is teaching students through the appropriate kind of future-oriented lenses, and one of those is thinking about climate adaptation. To me, one of the jobs that I have as a professor and that we have as a university is to make sure that students are are really learning what they need to be future-proof in their work. A competency framework like that allows us to think about what their work world is going to look like in the future and make sure that we're training them for the right things. So we can work that competency framework into things like where we review our program to make sure that it lines up with the graduate attributes that we're asking students to have when they graduate. That's also a key piece of this course is integrating how this knowledge that you have brought to this course is not just Mm -hmm. going to impact your professional life, but it really impacts the way that you move through the world because you get to see the workings behind these ideas. You don't normally think of like how a stop sign could be a policy, but now all I'm going to think every time I stop at a stop sign is (laughs) there's another policy. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. What made you want to get involved in climate change adaptation? I I don't think we've been teaching enough about that. Even in the universities, we mainly teach about mitigation, reducing greenhouse gases, the science behind climate change, which of course is super important. But I think adaptation is sometimes seen as a fallback. If we can't do what we really need to do, then we'll move in that direction. But I think there's opportunities there to create more buy-in for mitigation by really focusing on, as I said before, what people need, what people are going to need now and how we can help people. I really like that part of it. I'm quite interested in things where we're going to do practical stuff for people in the world, not just abstract things, things that are at the level of international forums or national forums even where most people they don't live their lives there but making sure that there's a homeless shelter down the uh, street from where I live here in Nanaimo I'm thinking about what it's like there in the summer in those um, corrugated uh, metal buildings that they have temporarily housed people in how bloody hot it's going to be there in the summer as the temperature goes up I just really like to get involved in it because it it allows me to do something that is really uh, practical and helpful on the ground. I am jealous of everyone who gets to take this course and all of your students at VIU because you're very passionate and um, committed to the way that you teach being embedded in that teaching. So I thank you for sharing that passion with so many people. Well, thanks, Ozzy. It was good to talk to you. It was nice talking to you too. And thank you to everyone who's listening. If you're interested in taking Michelle's course, there will be a link in the podcast description, or you can visit the Adaptation Learning Network website. I hope each of you have a wonderful day.